Welcome to Health Amplified, a Cleveland Clinic podcast about innovating, venturing, and amplifying the powers of healthcare change through strategic business and product development, ecosystem collaboration, and transformational leadership. I'm your host, Dr. Will Morris, and with me as always is Dr. Akhil Seklecha, Managing Director of Cleveland Clinic Ventures. Today, we have a very special super episode for the podcast with you. We're meeting with five emergency medicine experts from Cleveland Clinic, and they're gonna be discussing novel approaches to emergency room care. But it's not just about the acute care that they're rendering in the emergency department. It's about novel uses of technology, virtual visits, new payment paradigms to manage patients at home rather than having them come into the acute access hospital. And certainly we'll be talking and addressing the COVID-19 and the impact on our caregivers, but also the emergency departments across the nation. Let's dive on in. Uh, we have Dr. Brian Graham, who is a staff emergency medicine physician, but also the local expert on billing and reimbursement. And with him is Chris O'Work. Chris is the Administrator of Emergency, uh, Emergency Service Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Dr. Graham and Chris, welcome. Thanks for having us on. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I will uh, kick things off as, as a hospitalist. I know Akil, as a fellow emergency room physician, will have uh, probably more uh, pointed questions. But as a hospitalist, um, you know, certainly COVID has really opened the doors for telehealth. We see this for post-discharge patients or even um, you know, avoidance for readmission. I'm curious how COVID has opened the door, the proverbial door for telemedicine and emergency services. And more importantly, do you, do you see that door closing? Yeah, I think that uh, you hit the nail on the head. COVID, of all the things that came out of it, one of the positives was that we now have had a real acceleration into the virtual uh, arena, especially around acute care. Um, and that wasn't, I mean, all the geographic and access restrictions went away with a lot of the waivers. And then additionally, there was payment parity that surrounded it. And I think if you go back looking at acute care delivery, the ED sometimes is viewed as really this cost center, um, the most expensive place to actually go to be seen for something that's unscheduled. Um, and I think you can actually debate whether or not that's true, but the reality is, is there's been a push to really look at alternative ways to deliver that care. And we've seen programs that um, have actually focused on bringing physicians and PAs out to the home. Um, there's been various different virtual uh, models that have really focused on getting into the congregate care space or supporting rural health systems, but they're all really limited by the lack of reimbursement around it. So it was difficult to get buy-in beyond some type of shared savings model. And then out of COVID, uh, because there was just a need to reach people and do so efficiently, we now have this opportunity to do just that. And, and from there, we within ESI saw a real opportunity to really take advantage of it and enhance the care of the patients in our community, reach patients who are difficult to reach, whether they're in rural areas. Um, and then also, to your point on you know, all the other things within the health system, so we're reducing readmissions, uh, post-discharge care, there's also an opportunity to really, the second someone at home recognizes there's a problem, intervene before they walk into the hospital. And so with that, we saw so that there's benefit in having the experts in that, the people who are really, truly experts in acute, undifferentiated care, which is the emergency medicine physician. It's what we do. We see everything from I stubbed my toe to, you know, the full cardiac arrest. And that allows us really to be the ideal individual to see that patient up front virtually, to be able to make that same assessment. There's nothing that's outside of our scope. 
And so from there, we decided that what we needed to do to really pursue that was essentially build a virtual ED um, that had this 24-7, 365 board certified emergency medicine coverage to do just that for whatever would otherwise come to the ED if there was an opportunity to intervene on site or enhance that care on site. So not just even present, prevent the ED visit, but let's say they're loco located somewhere where there's a transport time of 20 minutes with EMS and the patient's in cardiogenic shock. I mean, there's real benefit to having an ED provider help guide care for those 20 minutes to improve outcomes. Um, Chris, I don't know if you had additional thoughts. Yeah, I think the pandemic just on the provider end has made our physicians, our nurses, our APPs a lot more comfortable using uh, you know, telehealth or virtual health. So during the pandemic, you know, we we had a lot of measures with COVID to, to kind of limit interactions, et cetera, with patients that were potentially positive. So I think our providers and our, our teams in the EDs got a lot more comfortable using that technology. And I think our patients in turn got a lot more comfortable. Um, and then on the back end, you know, once, you know, I think Brian hit, uh, you know, how we leverage virtual health on the front end kind of before they get to the ED. But we've been a lot more comfortable on the back end, you know, scheduling ED follow-up appointments with different specialists, um, you know, connecting patients directly with SNFs and discharging them right to the SNF as opposed to admitting them to the hospital and having some of those kind of virtual consults with those SNFs to make sure that that coordination of care was there. So I think, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff on proactively on the front end to keep them from ever hitting the ED or the hospital, but then on the back end, kind of leveraging virtual health to make that kind of a smooth transition to the next step in that patient's journey. So I, I have to say that um, I'm really pleased at having, uh, you know, fellow ER personnel on this uh, podcast. I think uh, it's good to kind of turn the tables a little bit, so a little bit on the internal medicine folk on the call well well it but, it, 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 it but, evens out it, it evens out the uh, the iq so that's uh, yeah i think i think uh, yeah we can talk about our average and that's that's probably much better but regardless i, I think uh, we're digressing will but i i did want to touch upon some of the uh, the comments that that both of you made and i think it a lot of it was around how uh, you know we within emergency medicine are now taking advantage of this, uh, I, I think, tidal wave of opportunity to to catalyze change, and 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 so much of it, so much of it is is positive in so many ways. You know, a lot of the restrictions that we had. You know, Chris, you mentioned even the ability to coordinate care with with uh, with SNFs uh, directly out of the ER and get some of those patients there versus you know having to keep them in in a hospitalized setting. To manage that 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 time period, it you know some of it is within our ability and control, and some of it is also willingness from external groups like SNFs to and, and nursing homes to partake in in some of this uh, new innovation. And so when you when you look at the change that that both of you were talking about, how did you how did you find the the external parties, you know, willing or unwilling, uh, their ability to change and adapt. Uh, you know, maybe some examples of that. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I think one, you know, one area that we really leveraged kind of CMS leading the way was in this uh, ET3 model, which is the emergency uh, triage, treat, and transport. So to give you guys some context, historically, the payment model really focused on 
when a patient calls 911, the only way an EMS squad could be reimbursed for the most part was if they transported that patient to an actual physical ED. Now, you know, we saw some opportunity there with, you know, potentially um, patients coming to the ED that really didn't need to be in the ED at that moment. Um, but it really took kind of one of the payers, obviously the largest payer, CMS, to kind of take the lead on this. And what, what they've done with this ET3 model is revise the payment to allow these EMS squads to be paid additionally for kind of two instances. One being if they transport patients to an alternative destination, such as a PCP's office, an urgent care, a detox center, for example, or if they actually take care of these patients on scene with the help of a uh, qualified healthcare partner, uh, such as the Cleveland Clinic. So we've partnered with a couple squads um, that are participants in this program, and we really leverage kind of a virtual consult while they're on scene to help assess the patient, triage them uh, to an appropriate care setting or take care of them on scene. Um, but that was really, you know, now we're kind of taking that concept and some of the demonstrated value in being able to sit down with other payers um, who once we kind of have a use case and some data there are very, very eager to jump on board. Um, so that's kind of one example I think of. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, for us, it all really started a couple of years ago with introduction of that model and recognizing that there was significant value for us to enhance our EMS partnerships and potentially even create new ones. Um, and then, but the that model, you know, it, EMS is funny, right? They, they have to go out and they see somebody on scene and they can't ask, are you Medicare? Are, are you Medicaid? Are you a commercial yep. payer? They just pick them up and bring them to us and we take care of them. Same thing. We don't, we don't do wallet biopsies or anything like that. So in order to have success in this program, we had to have third party payer buy-in because EMS needed to make sure that they could get reimbursed for leveraging us to deliver that care on scene. And if it wasn't a Medicare patient, they'd still get paid because, you know, they, they're usually their budget comes from the city. Oftentimes they're underfunded, they're overworked. So to say, you know, the baseline is you're taking somebody to the ED getting paid and now we're taking that away from you. There wasn't a lot of interest there. So we really started circulating this idea uh, pre-COVID and we actually uh, got one particular payer within Ohio, they have a big market presence, to really buy into it. And from there, we entered into a unique contract with them where they actually provided some upfront funding to help with this program um, that allowed us to really, they saw it, saw it just how we did that. This EMS ET3 model was kind of the tip of the iceberg, but there was 10, 15 different other ways to reach those patients virtually and, and create this virtual ED that's just gonna allow us to get into pockets of the state or the country where patients have nowhere else to go. Um, and then also those real high utilizers that are kind of a, a, an opportunity for both the health system and the payer. I, I think you, you're, what you elucidated, I think, is the, the fundamental hypothesis, and, and it's the right one, that uh, for those listening really need to understand and grasp. Um, you know, there are some tremendous innovative care models. And I think as clinicians and administrators, we are all eager to do that, but it's about alignment of incentives. And that, you know, that also means payment parity in order to achieve these outcomes. I think you, you really elucidated that. Help, help me understand kind of, you know, to Akil's point, you know, when you're approaching a, a, a payer, not CMS, um, you know, what's your angle? Is it that we can reduce your, you know, membership, uh, you know, you know, expenses, utilization? 
you know, how were you able to kind of assuage the the concern that um, you know this wouldn't actually create actually more utilization on the back end? Yeah, I mean, exactly all of those things is kind of what we focus on, and the primary one being that it is it's going to be inherently a, a cost savings measure for any patient that would have called nine one one and gone to the ED historically. They're going to incur both the seeing the physician uh, fee, so the professional fee, but then also the facility fee associated with just utilizing the ED in and of itself. The ET3 model immediately takes that away because there's no facility fee associated with that virtual visit. So it's just the physician services that uh, the insurance company is paying for. And oftentimes, um, because of all the resources an ED has to have and the technology and the, we need to be staffed to be able to handle anything at any time, those facility costs can occasionally be you know, three or four times as high as the professional fee. Um, and so that alone, this model allows for immediate cost savings there. Um, and then there's also a big, uh, you know, we were lucky that CMS actually put together this great white paper that talked about the impact it can have. It focused on a few different pilot programs that really had uh, this type of intervention. And they were able to actually reduce ED utilization through this and subsequent readmissions by 10% and 15% respectively. So that also really supports the model and the potential impact that it can have. But I think the other point that we've really tried to uh, get across is, you know, when you expand this outside of just EMS, there's an impact to further reduce your readmissions. There's also an impact to really enhance the quality. And that gets back to this patient is 20 minutes from the closest TV and they are teetering on the edge of, of death, essentially. And you have a paramedic or an EMT, or we actually had um, one congregate care facility that we were talking to, they're in the mountains of Virginia. They have no EMS access after 5 p.m. And a portion of the congregate care space is an LTAC, so they have ventilated patients. So if it's 3.30 and someone's teetering, they'll call 911 preemptively just because they don't know what they're going to do in the middle of the night when it's just a nurse in-house. Um, so there's a real opportunity there, too, to just have that ED physician get you through that rough part of the night, that rough stretch, um, and improve that patient's you know, mortality and morbidity, but also uh, reduce healthcare costs. Cost. Yeah, I think this this whole concept of a virtual ED, right, and bringing an ED into your own, whether it's a, a non-medical facility, your home, a nursing home, I mean, that, you know, that extension of care uh, is is really a novel concept, right? And, and it, it gets back to the, the introductory comments we made, which is that Without this, without COVID happening, a lot of this would never have had that initiation and force of acceptance by everybody willing to try these type of, you know, novel uh, delivery of care. I mean, my mind is now racing because, you know, it starts with this. This is kind of the the uh, beginning, but it certainly opens up a whole host of new care models and new care continuum, whether it be you know, remote patient monitoring, now proactive as opposed to reactive triage and monitoring services. Um, so, so thank you, Dr. Graham and Chris. Um, it's been absolutely tremendous to learn a little bit about uh, what you all are up to. And, and I look forward to uh, re-inviting you back in a year or so, and uh, you'll tell us what you're off to next. Uh, today, we continue our dialogue to explore uh, emergency services 
and we have the senior vice chairman of the patient uh, experience office of the Emergency Service Institute, as well as um, the academic chair of emergency medicine at uh, Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine, Dr. Steve Meldon. Dr. Meldon, thanks so much for joining us today. It should be a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. I thought we we could uh, do stuff differently today and actually have Akil, uh, you know, kick things off as a fellow uh, emergency room physician, uh, Dr. Seklecha. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I got to say though, it's uh, uh, you know, Steve is one of my bosses, so we'll uh, I, I'll, I'll be careful of the questions that I throw him. I'll let you do the hard questions. Right. Uh, but but Steve, you know. Um, it would be great to explain a little bit about the different roles that you have first, uh, just at a high level across our whole uh, ESI and, uh, and and what some of those roles mean to, to the organization. Yeah, so, you know, really as we grew rapidly, when I got here nine years ago, we had two sites and 30 doctors, I think. And now we have, you know, 150 doctors, 150 PAs, 15 EDs, um, and it really, we needed to create, you know, a better organized structure for that. And, and that's really where some of the roles uh, came on. So Dr. Borden asked me to be the medical director at Main Campus um, shortly after I got here and then uh, assume the uh, vice chair and then senior vice chair role, really to help represent ESI um, on an enterprise level. Um, we met uh, early on about patient experience and I was selected. I joke that's kind of one of those ones where everybody stepped back and it looked like I stepped forward uh, and became the patient experience officer. I had a lot of training in that through a prior uh, employment and really worked with that. So, you know, had a good handle on it and we've done really well with that. Some, some novel things, which I think we'll talk about. Um, and then last, we did, were not an academic department until recently. Uh, we were part of the Department of Medicine at Lerner College of Medicine here in the Cleveland Clinic. And we applied for department status and got that. And I'm the inaugural chair for that academic department. And and so when you look at the uh, all the different hats you wear um, and prioritizing your time, where you know where where are you spending it? Like where where is the the bulk of your time? Because typically you'll spend time on where the the focus is. Is how, how do you where do you look at that and how do you spend your time there? You know, it's pretty evenly split between departmental duties, main campus, uh, since I'm the, kind of the center director for main campus, um, and also then at the enterprise level. Uh, so that drives a lot of it. The patient experience, I think we've gotten fairly buttoned up, which we'll talk about. Uh, so that doesn't take a lot of time. And then uh, certainly running the geriatric EDs, putting those together, uh, and then looking at some, um, really some research projects around that really take up a lot of the time. So, you know, on the geriatric ER side, so I'm going to ask maybe more of a skeptics question mm -hmm. there because I, I first I know firsthand kind of what it's like, but is this just a marketing ploy, or is there actually something there behind uh, uh, the geriatric ERs? Yeah, there's definitely something behind it. So let's talk about that. So what's driving the geriatric ED uh, concept, and it really is is the recognition of need, right? Um, this is a unique population with geriatric syndromes and unique needs and increasing exponentially, right? If you look at the demographics, over a 40 year period from 2010 to 2050, this population will increase from 40 million to 80 million. So we know that they're unique populations, right? So who else presents with cognitive impairment, 
delirium, polypharmacy, fall risk, a very unique population. And we also recognize that the standard ED model, right, which is based on what's your chief complaint, address that and move the patient along quickly, doesn't really fit well with the geriatric patient. They have cognitive needs, they might have social needs, uh, they have functional impairments that really doesn't exist in a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old. So that, that's long been recognized probably for the last several decades. Um, and through that, the American College of Emergency Physicians said, why don't we create an accreditation program and really put some structure around improving care for older ED patients? Steve, you once uh, you actually said this recently to me, and it's absolutely stuck in my head. Is is you know what an opportunity in four hours we can accomplish five days worth of workup, right. treatment, and evaluation. And I imagine you know you have that elderly patient coming in; they might have an acute issue, fall, a UTI, but you look at them and they have polypharmacy or et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know how do you how do you teach that to 150 physicians to kind of say hey there's a paradigm shift don't just be focused on that chief complaint but look at the entire whole patient. Well, that's a great question, right? Because part of the whole accreditation process it's based on improving care. How do we do that? We do it through enhanced staffing, enhanced education, and then also policies and protocols to address these needs. So for example, um, I put out a little lessons learned. I'll, I'll, I just put out something on delirium, right? To, here, hey, here's delirium. Uh, it's an acute process. Here's the outcomes. Here's its presentation, right? Here's how you address it. But we have to do more than that. As you know, we really need more of a, a process, not just education. So what's our process? We started screening for delirium using a simple two-stage screen, uh, and we're screening all older people over 65. Um, so now we're actually recognizing it because we know it's under-recognized, right? Uh, it's under-recognized in the ED, it's under-recognized on the floor, uh, especially the hypoactive delirium. So it's a combination of that education and process that I think really is gonna move the needle and improve care. And how do you see, uh, you know, I'd imagine, you know, delirium and, 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 and as you said, we have an elder uh, aging population, polypharmacy and just the fractured nature of healthcare. How do you feel like, you know, you're training at the point, but then you need to do that transition of care. How are you um, educating those that you interact with to ensure a seamless, you know, transition of care? Well, that's a big thing, right? Transitions of care we know are important. So one thing we really focus on in, in uh, ESI is transitions of care. For example, we developed our ED to SNF program. That's all about transitions of care. Mm -hmm. I think the big thing, Will, is, uh, is a couple things. One, it's a team approach, right? So transitions of care, I need case management helping me with that, right? I can do the medical part. I, have, I, I can't do other parts like find an appropriate facility to take a patient if they don't need to be admitted. The other thing that we're doing that's very unique to the Cleveland Clinic is we have partnered with the Center for Geriatric Medicine. I think we may be the only geriatric ED in the country that actually has a geriatrician embedded in the ED. Usually you're using nurses or advanced practice nurses or case management to screen patients, but we actually have a geriatrician here. We've also done an interesting thing. So our um, delirium screening, and then when we have that, we'll actually put in a consult for geriatric medicine. That's great here at main campus where I have my geriatric care unit and CDU, and we can put the patients there. But if I put that request in, it actually flows to the inpatient side. Mm -hmm. So if I find some recognized needs, 
whether it's polypharmacy, whether it's, hey, this person's had three falls, they're at risk for another fall. We can actually get those patients seen even if they get admitted. So we're really trying to cover both sides, right? You know, the ED is the nexus for the outpatient and inpatient world. So how do we hit both of those? Uh, we have referral patterns uh, set up for the Center for Geriatric Medicine, their successful aging program. So, you know, got hats off to Dr. Hashmi who's, you know, doing that. And then obviously Dr. Saxena, who's my partner here at the geriatric EDs. Now, how do we, you know, there, there's so much to do there, you know, because you've talked about education, you've talked about the, the, the team importance there and having, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the enhanced team. You've talked about uh, looking at a bunch of different geriatric issues, transition of care. Are, you know, are these all processes or are you using any technology there to augment and, uh, you know, make things better, faster, cheaper and, and scale right. with every, all the efforts? No, that's a great question, too. And that's another unique thing that I think we found is we know that um, there are there are a number of screens you can do in uh, geriatric ED patients. Uh, we have helped develop one years ago, uh, but they're they're manual. They ask questions about function. They ask questions about how many medications you're on, et cetera. What we did that was very unique was we took those issues, uh, cognitive impairment, delirium, um, age greater than 80, polypharmacy, fall history, ED uh, recidivism or, or visits within six months. And we bundled those into Epic to create a, a really um, a best practice alert that this is a high-risk geriatric patient. So our alert system actually pulls out of Epic and creates a banner that says, hey, this is a high-risk geriatric patient. They're 83. They've been here twice with a fall. Uh, and that really alerts the providers to say, huh, I wonder, you know, what can we do for transitions of care, for workup to really help this patient? So that's a unique thing as opposed to a, like a manual screen where a nurse is trying to screen for these high-risk geriatric patients. So so do you also see, I mean, you know, this sounds great, um, but what are the metrics? You know, how, how do I, you know, measure the outcome? Because ideally we right. want to prevent falls. We want to prevent readmission. We want to keep, you know, those patients healthy and safe at home. What are, you know, your thoughts on how we trap those metrics? And then how do we leverage those with, you know, at-risk contracts, et cetera? Yeah, so that's great too, because what we decided was doing that manually was probably impossible, right? 25% of our ED patients are geriatric. That's a lot of visits. So we actually have a dashboard that we've developed where we look at what's the delirium rate, right? Here's how many people we screen for delirium. Here's a positive rate. You know, um, we look at falls through that. Uh, so we look at a lot of things through a dashboard and then we can start to get a nice glimpse to say, you know, I think we need to address this with some type of education or another process or another screen or something. Once you kind of get that high level view. So I think the dashboard is really unique. And I think um, if you're going to be a geriatric ED level one, which is the highest level, you really need that because, you know, we're look, we're tracking a lot of things. I'm tracking Foley catheter use. We're tracking, you know, restraints, which we don't want to do, right? Delirium. So all of that kind of goes into our dashboard. Still working on it. Uh, it's a work in progress, like all dashboards, right? As we kind of get to get more facile with it. But um, I think it's been a big, big help for us managing this. And then knowing that, we can start to uh, look at our processes, whether it's the admission rates, right, or transfer rates, uh, direct to sniff programs. You know, we can really get, a, I think, a better handle on that.
You know, if I if I uh, if I if I just maybe double click on what you just said, it seems to me that uh, the metrics that you're doing and while you're tweaking them, they they can make a meaningful difference. Um, I think on the population size of, of what we're doing, but also individually. Are there right. Are there any anecdotes or, or stories that you're aware of on an individual basis where you think the the implementation of the geriatric ER made a difference? Uh, that's great. Actually, we like to share those stories with our staff because I think I think stories resonate, and I think you're absolutely right on. I mean, yes, we're making a difference on a population base. Uh, we've seen that when we look at admission rates out of the GCU. They're significantly lower than just if you're placed in the CDU and did not see the geriatrician. Uh, but the individual ones, for example, you know, maybe uh, getting appropriate home health services, right, that keeps the patient out of the hospital. Because really, what's the goal? It's, it's healthy, successful aging, right? Um, and how can we do that? Avoid unnecessary admissions, right? Uh, we do, we've done a lot of things where we've adjusted medications. They were having one, the most recent case I can think of, we had an older patient. Um, on two beta blockers because this discordant American medicine causes things like that. And they come in with syncope. Uh, what a shock, right? Um, so we really change the medications, put that then in the EMR because that's important, right, to carry that forward. So we have a system to do that, to actually change the, the do a true medication reconciliation, you know, and get that person back home and really decrease the risk of subsequent falls, right? So there's a good example of, of Dr. Saxena, you know, looking through this going, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And that's the kind of things I think we need to do. So, I mean, that's a great example. It's, it's the positive, uh, you know, reinforcement of doing the right thing, um, but that sometimes doesn't always drive behavior. And so, and I'm curious on the, on the stick side, um, you know, we see HEDIS measures and quality, you know, uh, measures that were required in the ambulatory space. Do you imagine some of these scores and work being something that actually you would you would um, uh, you know advocate for policy change for public reporting on delirium screening you know polypharmacy mm -hmm. management how do we wh what are your thoughts on just not only building a great program but also driving um, requirements public reporting legislation if you will or payment parity around these things to to really kind of affect change. So this is the hard question part, right? No, that's a great question. And I think, you know, um, I don't think we're there yet. And here's why. This is, these programs are really still in the infancy. This, okay. this geriatric accreditation program really started just a couple of years ago. I think as you build out those, those capabilities, I think then you start to address, hey, where else can we do this? So for example, um, I think we already do some of this, right? We look at CAUTIs, you know, catheter-associated urinary tract infections. What's that done? It's driven the decrease in Foley catheter use. We used to throw Foley catheters in everyone. Why? For convenience. That's yep. the wrong answer, right? So I think, yes, it does follow. I think you, you first recognize it. You, you get everybody together on the same page saying this is an issue. Um, and then I think it does, th this will follow, for example. We know that if we do the right thing for the patient, we're going to have better outcomes, less cost. It's almost kind of organic, isn't it? And you guys know that. Um, and so I think we're focused on what's the right thing for the patient. Guess what? Admission to the hospital might be the right thing for the patient, right? But it might not be. So how do we kind of drive that uh, through teamwork, through case management, 
you know, um, and then we will be successful, just like with the E.D. Smith program. We were successful in uh, preventing unnecessary hospital admissions just for Smith placement. Well, it's uh, absolutely a pleasure, uh, Steve. It's clear there's a there's a, a third C, which is compassion. I mean, your compassion to question the status quo, to um, address um, obviously this this tsunami of, of geriatric patients coming, uh, the confusion of navigating the medical uh, system, but all with an eye towards the patient. So. Right. Uh, you know, it's clear. You know, caring in, in in communication is key. But but the compassion of you and your colleagues are are absolutely exemplary. So, you know, we thank you a for your time today, uh, but more importantly, um, you know, your service and in, in continued innovation. Um, we would love to also be a partner with you as is is you see gaps and white spaces that perhaps need to be enabled through either technology or other services. You know, this to me is is not the end of the chapter, is, is the beginning. Right. Um, today joined with us is uh, Dr. Jason uh, Milk, who is the center director of the East region, and Jim Mark. Uh, Dr. Mark is the center director of our West region. Uh, Dr. Milk and Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining myself and Dr. Seklecha. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so, for having us. So I think it would be great to, for us to kind of lead off is, is you know, my understanding is, you know, 80 to 90 percent of, of, of uh, emergency service, you know, patient volumes actually occur in the region. Give the audience a little perspective of kind of your thoughts on, on best practice innovation. How do you leverage, you know, where the majority of care is rendered, those best practices, and how do you actually feed it back both centrally, but also to dis disseminate it across a, a, a group practice? So, um, it you know, we've kind of split up um, ESI or the way things have been managed in ESI over the last two or three years. Um, and J we used to be a lot more main centric, so to speak, um, a lot more of the uh, leadership. Um, and now Jason and I are each set up in the region. Um, and as you said, you know, 80, 90% of the patients are seen out there. That's where the majority of the providers are. And so um, we really work a lot with our regional teams. Um, I would say that we get a lot of our ideas or a lot of our information from there. Um, we're really big with NESI on standardization, trying to make it the same at every site. So um, we're pulling uh, all of those ideas. We bring them back together, um, try to create a standard approach to uh, any of those ideas. And we can give you examples. I think we're going to talk about COVID uh, coming up here, how we kind of did that with that. Um, and then we set it up and roll it out both in, at main campus and then to all the regional sites. So uh, it's just getting more of a voice, more of a recognition of, uh, you know, a lot of the really bright providers that are out in the region and, you know, have a lot of ideas to share. And I think the structure with which ESI has designed itself at this point in time lends lends it to be a little more regional centric. Uh, both Jim and I spent a lot of time coordinating together to kind of hear the voice of the region. Um, again, the majority of the patients seen are there. Um, it's very intentional that we meet with our directors 
um, you know, at least twice a month to make sure that we understand the needs that are there. And if there's an issue at Avon, I guarantee it's not dissimilar at Euclid. Um, and kind of putting those things together, uh, I think a lot of our, our regional colleagues feel like the voice is, is heard. Uh, again, I think there's a lot of times that trickles back towards main campus, and then we need to kind of adapt it across the region. But the voice and the structure is certainly present for them to, to get their vision out there. So it's it's a good uh, it's actually a good segue into maybe a specific topic. And, and Jim mentioned COVID, and I think this whole play of uh, understanding how a central system works, how this the the spoke system works, especially as information and patients have to roll back and forth. Um, so so if we, you know if we go back about a year ago when uh, we're start, we're starting to prepare and and realize the that uh, things are 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 going to come in a painful way towards our patients and system how how did the ESI react um, both on the, in the regions and centrally so i think initially when when covid occurred uh, ironically we were in a a system wide meeting uh, with ED leadership at the time and uh, we kind of pulled ourselves out and began just kind of structuring what our response would need to be at that given moment with the information that we had. And I think at that time, I think most of us were really unprepared or unaware of the scope and the magnitude of where this was going to go. I think the smartest thing that we did was create kind of a cadence of meetings that were daily. Um, and it was really for message and dissemination of information. Uh, from those meetings, we began to put out daily reports to all of our teams, both uh, as a way to receive information, but as a way to put information out. And it almost became like, you know, uh, akin to like an old newspaper, right? So we had a heading, we had what was important, we had all the things that were necessary to know for the day. And then we huddled around those, that information at all of our shops every day. Um, and we even had other institutes asking to get our information because it seemed like we were we were passing information along at such a, a speed um, that we really had our finger in the pulse on on what was what was most current and what what was most necessary to understand at the time. So I think initially it was really about getting the right information together, getting the right pieces into play, and then really aligning that in a way that we could communicate it to our team so they felt safe and they felt understood when they were on shift. And in. in can you give an example of you know uh, you know communication and kind of awareness, especially as as things evolve, you know best practices that kind of emerged and kind of you know local innovation, and then you know give a you know maybe a side example of how that was you know disseminated, distributed, and and and, and deployed, so to speak. Sure. Um, so you know early on in COVID, there's a million things out there, right? Like. It was, you know, hydroxychloroquine was going to be something that might work or or any number of things, right? And there was so much out there that maybe would work or what's the best masking or, you know, how are we going to handle um, steroids or, you know, what meds should we be given? There was just a lot of questions, right? And so I think one of the things we did, Jason, and I set up a team of docs on for the region um, and uh, for ESI, actually, we had uh, folks on it from a couple of the different hospital sites and then uh, in the region and main campus, uh, got those group of five or six docs together and we started digging into what was out there, what uh, literature was there, what, you know, um, 
uh, information was out there and started getting a list kind of of best practices uh, uh, for COVID, right? And then we would add that to, as Jason said, we were communicating daily, right? We would start putting that out. And then we started putting out a treatment protocol or, or plan. We came up with a separate protocol. Um, and it actually led to a lot of nice interaction with the other institutes because then we started reaching out to the respiratory institute and um, started talking to the ICU docs and okay when they come to you how do you want to see this handled into the, the hospitalist and internal medicine uh, teams right um, and we started building our plan as part of a continuation or theirs as part of a continuation of our plan um, and and it made for a, kind of a nice seamless thing and it really made the region feel like um, you know, everyone out there, I think, felt like, okay, we really know kind of where we're supposed to be. And you get in, you know, everyone was getting a story from London or from somewhere else. Here's what we should be doing, right? And uh, so it kind of distilled a lot of those things and um, uh, kept it consistent. But the other neat thing that happened was we started realizing how many bright and um, engaged people were out there in the region wanting to kind of get involved with that and help. And from that, we had people doing research projects. And we had one guy, you know, had an engineering uh, buddy, and he started working on designing ventilators. And and um, we had um, uh, we we put out a video about um, PPE and and the risk of spread and kind of demystified a lot of the. Uh, fear and panic kind of that was out there. So, it, it, you know, kind of getting a group like that together and then working through it really led to a lot of nice, uh, uh, nice things for us. You know, we're, if we look at where we are now, you know, after, after all of those, all of that work, we start thinking we're coming out of the, the, the tunnel and then we hear more bad news going on and whether it's internationally or, or other parts of the state, we're still, our, our numbers in Ohio are still, you know, we're, the latest I saw is that our hospitalizations are still running above the 21 day average. So we're, we're not quite out of the woods yet. And, uh, but yet people are talking about post pandemic preparation or how things are going. How do you see where we are now, uh, kind of things that we've learned and then how do we implement those things to move forward? I think from, and you're absolutely right. Most of us are talking about things as as like the pandemic's over. But I think as we evolve over time, I think we're realizing that we need to be focusing not only on the current state, but as we look forward into the future, how it's still with us and we shouldn't become complacent. And a lot of our messaging over the last several months has really <clears> been <throat> about creating a safe environment, not only for our patients, but for our visitors and also for, for our staff. Um, most of our EDs still have uh, areas where we cohabitate COVID patients. We have certain rooms that, that are more, uh, you know, are designed better to have patients in certain areas. We certainly segregate our waiting populations from those that are potentially COVID positive from patients who are maybe not. Um, and I think as we look forward in the future, we say, you know, how does this apply to influenza? And, and why wouldn't we be doing it for that? And what other things are there that we should have on our radar for which we should forever provide some semblance of differentiation uh, for waiting spaces. And I think as we move forward in the future, this pandemic probably will forever change the way ERs are eventually designed. You know, it's, it's a good point. I, I think back to uh, some pediatricians offices where uh, they have a waiting room for, you know, 
kids that are sick and those that are well, right? Keep them apart. I, it, you're right. We may have to rethink how how things are engineered, uh, both in physical layout and and uh, and processes. You know, I, I you know a, another question I have is you know the ER increasingly is becoming a place of public health, uh, it, not not just for acute care things, but we're seeing patients that oftentimes have no health care uh, ever, and this is the time you're seeing them. And so some of the discussions I've heard are, you know, how can the emergency department play a stronger role in, in things that are traditionally considered primary care? For instance, screening or uh, vaccinations. Like, could if, if someone comes in for an ankle sprain, can we give them uh, a COVID vaccine if they haven't had one yet, right? How, how you know, I guess, how has ESI and, and the regions thought about things around becoming more active proponents and uh, engaging further on public health initiatives? You know, I mean, those are interesting ideas and, and you're probably right, right? Uh, I think there's some of that that's definitely going to happen where we kind of consolidate uh, some of their care, you know, when they come in, as you say, for one thing and we treat them for two or three others. Um, we see that a little bit. We see that starting to happen with programs such as our, um, you know, if someone comes in for a drug overdose, heroin overdose, something like that, right? And we're getting them involved and set up with um, the right agencies who are either coming in or virtually coming in and meeting with the patients and setting them up and or getting them directly to where they need to go. You know, in the past, we'd kind of wait them. Uh, you'd get them to clear clinically and then you discharge them maybe with referrals where now we're doing those whole, you know, maybe the whole week, first week of stuff uh, before they even get out of the ER. Um, and so I think it's probably more of those types of programs. The key, as you know, is, um, you know, keeping throughput in mind and not letting those types of things derail the, the uh, process of the ER for what we also, you know, what we specialize in, right, the sick patients and, and the patients that we need to keep moving through. So um, it's interesting. I agree. I think that there's going to be some uh, blending of the two. And I think as we move forward, I think you're going to see some of those programs pop up. I think the ED is probably hesitant about becoming a source for primary care. So the more we build, the more the more we get may get the things that we don't necessarily think should be in that, uh, you know, coming to the ED. I think probably where we're headed now uh, in the near term is probably more structure around making sure we get them a follow-up appointment in the primary medicine world. Um, because technically, we're not trained to do all of those things. Certainly, we could look at smaller buckets like vaccinations or some of those little avenues that are more convenience of care. Um, but as Jim alluded, we are stepping into the opioid arena. We are uh, now for STDs recommending getting HIV screenings. Um, so while we have them captured, we want to act. We want to act on some of this, but we really want to utilize the structure of healthcare as it currently exists, but really try to break down the walls of access. For those patients and if we can do that then we're at least getting them in the right direction i think there's more of an emphasis on that today than there's ever been well i wish to thank you both i, I think it's, a, it's a, an exciting journey um yes uh you know the year has been tremendously uh, difficult um you know i want to acknowledge not only your physician staff but the amazing nursing staff physical therapists the respiratory therapists who are all kind of out in the region, um, probably threadbare and worn out, but um, 
you know, I really appreciate your your reflections, but more importantly, your appreciation of kind of the evolution of care in being literally at the cutting edge, so to speak, of, of, of care. So uh, Dr. Milk and Dr. Mark, thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, for this podcast. Uh, this is Will Morris and uh, with uh, my partner, uh, Akil Seklecha. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Health Amplified, a Cleveland Clinic podcast. Be sure to subscribe to hear new episodes. Stay up to date with all of our programming by following us on Twitter at CC Innovations and LinkedIn by searching Innovation at Cleveland Clinic.